well, let's just build it and do it. And if we fail along the way, if we crash a rocket, if we try to land empty boosters and, and a few of them crash, that's part of engineering. That's part of the. That's part of what we do. We build things, we break them, we fix them, we make them better. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington, D.C. today, and joining me in the studio is Foreign Policy's diplomatic reporter, Emily Tampkin, and on the phone is Joe Papalardo. Emily is a diplomatic reporter here. Her recent article on billionaires in space and what it means for international cooperation appears this week in Foreign Policy. Joe is an aerospace author and journalist based in Dallas and a contributing editor for Popular Mechanics. His work has also appeared in Smithsonian Air and Space, Esquire.com, Time, and many other publications. ER listeners, we love hearing from you. You have episode ideas or comments. You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. We wanted to talk today about the future of space, not a typical question for foreign policy. Joe's recent book, Spaceport Earth, tackles the ever-changing 21st century space industry and what privately funded projects like Elon Musk's SpaceX mean for the future of space travel, specifically for spaceports. At the forefront is the, the reinvigorated desire to search the final frontier are industrial titans, engineers, billionaires, airmen, and public officials. So as I mentioned, space travel isn't something we normally talk about at foreign policy, but last month, the first space nation left the International Space Station. Asgardia 1, did I pronounce that right, Emily? Asgardia 1, that's right. Is actually a satellite launched into space by an Azari Russian billionaire. The satellite contains personal data from some of the nation's 300,000 citizens. Asgardia, as yet unrecognized by the United Nations, and its citizens are people who filled out an application form. Is it free, Emily? Um, I actually don't know. I think you probably have to pay a fee to be a citizen of Asgardia 1. Fascinating. So we'll get back to Asgardia 1 in a second. But let me first turn to Joe. Um, What, you know, in terms of what motivated you to write this book? I mean, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about sort of the privatization in space. But you took almost sort of a geographic approach to it. Yeah, the um, well, first of all, thanks for, for having me. I definitely appreciate it. But the, the impetus for the book was sort of my own, my own evolution on how I was thinking about space flight. I mean, when I started um, in, this, in, the, in the business, it was long, in, uh, long, uh, long enough ago that, that there's been a lot of you know, seismic changes that that young aerospace reporter wouldn't believe is even possible. And my sort of skepticism of what is achievable slowly eroded. And, um, and I kind of wanted to share that experience. I mean, watching the final space shuttle launch is sort of where the, the book begins, and it ends with pri- you know, private companies launching to the International Space Station. And I would have never bet that could have happened. And to be able to watch it from, from the staff of Power Mechanics and then covering it after, I kind of wanted to share that experience and just give a, a closer view of, of what happened to space flight between the shuttle launching and these private space companies coming up and how it's shaping not only the United States, but what it's doing internationally as well. Well, let's back up for a second. I think you and I are of the generation where sort of the seminal event for space travel certainly wasn't the landing on the moon. It was the explosion of the space of, of, of the Challenger um, space shuttle. And for us, I mean, I think growing up, what we saw was sort of, you know, either launches that weren't doing that much in terms of it, you know, space exploration or disasters like Challenger, which really, I think, was disillusioning in some respects. And you talk about this in your book. Um, you know, what, did that sort of color your approach, you think, into thinking about where space exploration should be going? I, definitely. I mean, we didn't have a triumph, like, you, like you're saying. We didn't have 
a big mission. We didn't even have a destination. I mean, I I love and appreciate the International Space Station for what it is. I think it's a wonder of the world, but it's not that exciting. Um, some of the research is exciting, but it's not landing on the moon, and it's not, you know, a, a, an epic quest. Um, it's it's a research station, and it's scientific, and it's steady, um, and it's expensive, and and it's wrapped up in diplomacy, and it's not the daring do. It's not, uh, you know, Rick Ransom, you know, blazing to the universe, and, you know, you know, and it's not very personalized either. So I think what Elon Musk did to draw us back into the billionaires and what people like me, and, and uh, you know, resisted initially was I'm making bold statements. I'm going to back it up. You know, um, I'm going to drive the price point of space launch down. And I'm going to change the way that everybody, the government and the private sector, launches rockets. And that's going to open up space flight. And you got to call BS on that because we've heard stuff like that. I mean, we had Richard Branson, you know, out in, in uh, New Mexico building a spaceport and launching nothing year after year. So, I mean, we were, I thought, rightfully on guard against that kind of thing and skeptical. And it's not like when you're riding around with the United Launch Alliance or anybody else that they were saying good things about SpaceX. There was very smart engineers pointing out some of the things that could go wrong, but his embrace of risk, which is either foolhardy or genius, depending on what happens on the pad, made things happen and really changed the dynamic. And he's winning government launches, winning commercial launches. We didn't have any commercial launches until SpaceX came around where it was only government launch out of the United States. His company single-handedly changed that and now others are following in his wake. So, and I've, I've actually told this, but not to be a name-dropping asshole, but I actually mentioned this to him once at a Popper Mechanics thing. I said, you know, I never believed you could do it, but I'm sort of eating crow, and I just want to tell you, you know. Um, you know and what did he uh, say? What did he say back? He said, he said thanks. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> great. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, he was with Tallulah Riley at the time, the actress, and, uh, and she said, yeah, a lot of people don't, come out and say stuff like that, even though a lot of people probably think it. So, you know, he appreciates it. And I stood and looked at him and said, I don't think he appreciates it. I think he's barely registering I'm here. But um, but it was a big moment for me and a, and a completely, you know, unimportant moment for him. But it was a chance for me to just say, hey, listen, you know, um, we're going to give him a, our breakthrough award that the magazine bestows every year. And I lobbied against him and I held off for a year until he launched to the space station. And um, so it was sort of in that context, it made, it made sense to hold off and say, prove it, prove what you're doing. And well, sure enough, the guy's done it. And what did Elon Musk do right that Richard Branson wasn't able? I mean, why was Elon Musk able to move forward where perhaps Richard Branson didn't? Customer base. Um, I mean, Branson was building a, a play toy for rich people and convinced a, a poor county to help fund it, or two poor counties to help fund it, and then didn't follow on an on a engineering timeline that was unreasonable. Um, big, several big things wrapped up in there compared to Elon Musk, who saw a, a niche in the market, uh, several markets, commercial launch and, and government launch, saw a way to help fund it by getting NASA grants you know, get, delivering for them and proving it in a real-world scenario. Um, it's a it's a different kind of an approach, and it, and it could have failed miserably. But his embrace, those are some of the business risks as well as the engineering risks that he embraced that traditional space flight people would recoil from. I mean, the, the payload is worth a lot more than the rocket, even if it's not people. Um, and to 
like the word risk is a four letter word. It's a, it's the worst thing you can say in a room to someone who owns a, you know, a satellite that's going to generate billions of dollars in orbit. So, and it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars on the ground. So he's, you know, talking about, hey, lighten up and accept a little bit more risk is not something you hear in the industry. And he brought that to the table and somehow made it stick and his rockets fly and his, his payloads get to where they're going most of the time. So a couple questions. One, what do you make of, because Richard Branson has been quite critical of Elon Musk and he and sort of said, you know, oh, um, you know, he's so obsessed with Mars, whereas I'm more concerned with helping humanity. So one, what is, I mean, what do you think of that? But then two, since, you know, you keep coming back to this idea of risk, now that we've sort of seen that he has, has risen to the challenge, like the first set of challenges, do you think that now that he's shown he can do it, that there are new risks that need to be? And if so, what, what are they? The... Um the, the risk that, um, and it ties in Branson and Musk, is the risk of overreach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, you know, what is truly achievable and what's achievable on your own, what's achievable outside of, of government regulation or interference or, you know, or, or oversight is where he's going to hit a ceiling sooner or later. Um, it's, it's funny that, that Branson criticizes Musk when his business model is, is sliding more towards launches and air launches of satellites mm-hmm. and on-demand launches um, rather than launching rich people into suborbital space. And, I mean, that's the, the, that market <laughs> it was proven out by Elon Musk. So um, he, he may have a point where he, you know, and, and the news recently where Elon Musk is bagging on public transport. It's like, oh, yeah, well, a rich guy doesn't like to ride in a bus. Go figure. But he's, you know... He, he seems like a dreamer, and he seems like someone who dreams about Mars and maybe doesn't care so much about Earth. That fits a sci-fi mold where a lot of people, affil- you know, have an affinity for that. I mean, we, you know, the people who are environmentalists for Mars and say, well, maybe we shouldn't build anything there and keep the environment pristine, is like anathema to explorer types who just want to put their roots down and build a windmill. And, uh, and a tunnel and live there. So they're diametrically opposing views in a, lot, in a lot of ways. And it's easy to see Elon as a distant egomaniac because he isn't a distant <laughs> egomaniac. I mean, it's, you know, there it is. But for Branson to level that at him, it's kind of amusing. And this is a, the man who put his own face on ice cubes of the airline you're on. So, uh, you know, it's, you know this, that's billionaire stuff. Right? And, classic <laughs> billionaire really stuff, you know? Yeah, same. Um, but a, a question on the environmental point. So someone I spoke to in reporting this piece said that a difference um, that he sees from, I think it was the 70s, is that back then people who were really motivated to go to space and, and settle on space were much more environmentally conscious. And it was about sort of, you know, preserving the earth and making this new pristine environment. And that he's not seeing that with the current generation of, of, uh, of you know, I guess, space heads. Um, do you see the current crop of billionaires as, how can I put this, as an extension of the last generation of, of space nuts? Or are they something different than what you had in the 70s or, or the 60s? But it's a it's a really good question. And Thanks, Joe. I, <laughs> that which is you know <laughs> the way I can buy time to get a really good answer to it, <laughs> which is uh, which is a little elusive. I think they are the heir to it. I think um, I had a, recently had a sit down with um, Tom Stafford, who's a, a an astronaut, and who lamented bitterly lamented what he said was a lot. You know, the, the lost time, what, what we should have done, um, where we should be. You know, it's one thing in media when you're doing science journals and you say, "Oh, they just discovered something. They just did something. They just landed somewhere." 
we're so conditioned to think, well, we've already seen that. I've seen Europa Report. Why do we need to drill through the ice? You know, um, hey, flying, flying cars. Who cares? Of course, we've been watching flying cars in cinemas and projections. Big deal. And all the engineering triumphs that go behind it are left by the wayside. So I think that the bitterness of, of that, that, that generation and, and to a lesser extent, that I that I feel about oh we're not going fast enough we're not going far enough we're not exploring enough we've lost the edge all that kind of talk and then it, it doubled it's doubled down recently with a lot of you know oh space military edge is is now we're losing that and that that's a big meme going on so the idea that we've fallen behind and this is our national right is ingrained in the Apollo program I mean that that became national prestige and space became one in the same. They always really were, but that space race really put a, a fine point on it. And, you know, and then to see the shuttle explode as the, as the counter to that, it's just a, a large, you know, pickup truck that goes back and forth to space and doesn't really even go very far. And it was still sort of a, a historic failure um, in terms of, it was a historic disappointment, I should say, not a failure. It was supposed to do a lot more. It was supposed to open up space and it did that's what we get, the steady diet of it could have been, it didn't, it was mismanaged, it was dangerous, it was risk-averse but still deadly, you know, all these sort of, all this negativity. And now you've got the antidote, which is, well, let's just build it and do it. And if we fail along the way, if we crash a rocket, if we try to land empty boosters and, and a few of them crash, that's part of engineering. That's part of the, that's part of what we do. We build things, we break them, we fix them, we make them better. And that ethos, I, that you know, that's hard to deny. Um, does that not square with environmentalism and 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 being sort of a um, stewards of the earth? A lot of them claim it, it's the thing that that inspires people to protect the planet because you go out into space and you look down and you see the frail little blue blue marble and everything. Whenever I hear that, I start to cringe because I, it sounds like a line. It, it, it doesn't sound like <laughs> what they're doing. You know, it, it doesn't mesh with their the, the goals of the company. So. Um, so it's it's a nice thought. Astronauts have that thought. It's a kumbaya thought, but it's not really what the business model speaks to. Yes, but speaking of um, of kumbaya and also National Edge, which you did. So something that I have been bumping up against in in thinking about this is whether the introduction of, or the not just introduction, but the involvement of very wealthy private citizens in the space race is good or bad for national cooperation. And, and and people I've spoken to have been very split, right? Some say, well, okay, so the U.S. and Russia have like this one last arena where they can cooperate. And if you introduce private money, what happens to government to government contact? Whereas others say, okay, but you have citizens from all these countries who are going to make governments work together. And, you know, I go around and I talk about space and, um, and it just makes people's walls drop and borders fall. And, and by the way, we're speaking about something that's literally outside of national boundaries. So, um, which which side, if either, do you do you fall on? It's it's the the refuge of, of, of many scoundrels and scoundrel programs. Probably should say, well, this is the thing that will bring us together. I, right now, the thing that's driving, you know, the the, the kumbaya apart and, and is ruining the song is um, is national nation to nation politics. I mean. At the end of the Cold War, it was the, the signal of the, the, the smartest thing you can do was get the Russians to build rocket engines for us. And it was held as this wonderful thing, like the Cold War is done. We're heading towards Star Trek. It's the United Federation of Planets. No one cares once you're off the, the planet. And, as, and when the relationship with Russia soured and, you know, the invasions and scandals and everything else, all of a sudden we're reliant on rocket engines from them and it became a bad thing. So the national politics shifted and 
tailing it was this production line for engines that we needed to launch, uh, amongst other things, spy satellites to watch the Russians. So, and, and don't think they didn't notice and say, hey, listen, we can cut the supply off of this stuff if you keep, you know, harping on us about, you know, Crimea or whatever the topic of the day was going to be. Um, they would always have that to hold over your head. So cooperation one year is a liability the next. And, um, or, you know, it, it, it's always changing. On the, on the private side, you see that um, would ha- the same thing would probably happen. I don't think the national borders and the national priorities end at the Carmen line. I think it, all that stuff extends into space, and that's only going to get worse um, or more of a reality. I don't. I, I think it's going to be more carved up. I think there'll be room for free flags, um, like um, like in shipping. You know, Luxembourg is going to be a space-faring nation. You can get licensed through Luxembourg and do your space flight activities. And that's, you know, nominally a nation. It's really just a place to do banking. Now it's going to be a place you can register your, your cargo ships. It can be a place you can register your cargo spaceships. Stuff like that will start springing up where government will only be a thin veneer on whatever your space industry is going to do just to make sure you can vend whatever you're, you know, whatever you're doing in space back on Earth if, if, that's, if that's your model. So I, I don't see it getting better. I don't see any kumbaya coming. I don't see the United Federation of Planets happening anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I see, you know, I see anti-satellite weapons and, uh, and, um, and, you know, unmanned space planes um, that, that the military operates. I just see that, I just see that growing. That's quite a downer. But no, but on that point, since Sorry. you brought it up, <laughs> the, you know, the idea of the enterprise, you know, the United Federation of Planets, you know, those of us who grew up on Star Trek always envisioned that space exploration would be, again, this sort of international, intergovernmental type body doing it. Um, so are, do you believe that that first, you know, spaceship to Mars is going to have Elon Musk's face emblazoned on it? I mean, do you think he or someone like him will do it rather than an international or national government organization? I think he'll be savvy enough to fly an American flag a little bit higher than the SpaceX flag, but they'll be on the mast together, and I don't think they'll have very much control over it. I think that'll be to preserve business interests at home. I, I don't see, you know, I don't see, I see the government following the industry on this one. Um, I, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't see, I don't see any government agency controlling what's going on here once it becomes a compelling interest to ignore it. Um, money over paper is one of my mantras, and as, as, as long and national security as well over paper. So, if you know, if there's a piece of paper stopping a lunar mining colony from turning over, you know, a twenty-three billion dollar haul, ain't nothing stopping that. Um, so, I, I think the industry, if one forms, will probably win out. And I think the geographic distance historically has always given you, as the explorer, colonist, trailblazing person. That's when you can make you get the most latitude. Once you've proven it out, and they try to reassert control, that's when you have your colonial, you know, civil wars and your wars of revolution and that kind of thing. So economically or physically. So I, to me, I, it's 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 part of that continuum, and it's not part of the you know James T. Kirk standing on the multicultural bridge necessarily. I think it's it's probably more like a boardroom. It's probably more like Alien, where there's corporations who are zipping around and are playing it, can, can play it a little fast and loose and set their own rules. Wow, and, um, we're getting serious and serious. Joe, yeah, you, yeah, you, you, you can't see our faces, day, but uh, I would describe <laughs> us as both having grimaced as you were <laughs> like getting this to Alien. 
the future, the future is here, and it's scary. Um, you know, we we've spoken mostly in terms of the billionaires in space, which I need to repeat as often as possible about Elon Musk. I mean, Jeff Bezos. I mean, Blue Origin for a while took a much much lower profile um, approach to things. How do, can you talk about how does that differ from sort of Elon Musk's goals? I mean, they're not talking about like you know traveling to Mars quite yet. Yeah, it's not lofty. It's really, if I was an investor, I'd probably want to invest in Blue Origin because it has, it's innovative and it's daring, but it's not, it's not, it doesn't feel irresponsible. It doesn't feel so forward. Um, I mean, they have a lot in common. They're secret, you know, Texas um, rocket test sites and their devotion to Cape Canaveral as a hub of launching and they're um, they're going after similar markets and, and satellite launch, but he's he's taking a different approach. As he kept under the literally under the radar until he crashed crashed a spaceship. Which I go through that in the book. It's a funny moment where this small town in Texas didn't even know what this guy was doing. You know, in on this ranch land outside of town, until he crashed a rocket ship outside of the confines of of, his, of the test area, and they had to respond to it. Didn't even know what chemicals were were in there, and the firefighters show up. So. You know, he's talk about a low profile. He's been telling the neighbors about that, and he's since fixed that. He's been very good with the neighbors for since then. But he recognized it as a, as a soft spot. But as a contrast to Elon Musk, who took all of us aerospace journalists on a tour of the SpaceX launch pad the day before the end of the shuttle program. So I mean, so so you know, he he was always very media forward, and that where I thought that was a liability to really work. Now Jeff Bezos is digging deeper roots. He's got, um, you know, a rocket manufacturing um, facility being built in the Cape, and he's getting involved in, in satellite programs that are more, you know, aimed literally and figuratively at, at helping Earth. Um, so he sort of has that that approach um, down that a little bit better than, than Musk does. Um, he's not as freewheeling, and he's slower, but it's deeper, and it seems more stable, then again, he hasn't launched anything into space. He hasn't launched anything in the National Space Station. He doesn't have a contract to launch people. But he's doing all of that quietly. So, you know, if that makes him a, um, a dark horse candidate, because he's intentionally keeping what he's doing in the dark. Um, but he's laying down roots, and he's going to have a big 2018, um, especially towards the end of the year when some of the things that he's working on, he reveals them. Um, even in late December, he tested out in West Texas, a manned capsule um, in some flights. So who who knows what the guy is, is going to actually reveal? He's really good at keeping secrets, and and it's part of his business model. So it's fun to have another one in the wings, another billionaire in the wings to unveil something interesting. Um, besides, you know, Paul Allen and and uh, Bert Rutan and Elon Musk. So there's um it's it's good to have him in the mix, and I think what he's doing could be and alliances that he's forming with traditional space. It's going to help them reform, drive their prices down, not be relying on the Russians. And he's a solution to a lot of problems that the more stagnant traditional space launch industry suffers from. And I think he's finding a lot of you know, receptive ears in those boardrooms, and he's gotten good deals with them. So he's definitely in the mix. He's doing it differently than the other guys. 
Now, of course, you focus mostly on people who are actually launching things. Emily, you also profiled a couple people who aren't quite launching their own rockets per se, but certainly have futuristic visions. There's Yuri Milner. Talk, talk a little bit, Emily, about his idea and what he's funding. Yeah, so Yuri Milner is is funding the research and design for Breakthrough Starshot Initiative, which is about getting to, uh, getting uh, not getting humans, but getting to Alpha Centauri, So, um, which, you know, is... Is, is quite sort of futuristic, um, even maybe even more so than Mars or the Moon, um, and which you know when you read about it, everybody's sort of like, okay, yeah, that's that's far out, that's futuristic, but wouldn't it be so cool if we could manage to do it? And by all accounts, so the people who who you know work for him or work with him sort of differentiate him from the Bezos, from uh, from the Musk, from Branson's by saying, you know, he's really he he just grew up as a as an astronaut and, and this was his first love and he wanted to go into it and he couldn't and now he has this money and he's invested it um and and you know he's and he's he's great to work with and and blah 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 but there are also people who are quite hesitant and say you know he invested this money but what happens when those millions run out and we're still not at Alpha Centauri and then what what happens to this very expensive program so there's no uh, business plan it's not a right it, no this commercial is a truly, <laughs> it is it's uh, not a commercial plan. It's not a commercially viable plan. It's a, it's truly a plan about uh, scientific inquiry and curiosity, which makes me, as just a private citizen, uh, sort of nervous about you know it, should we be having a few very rich individuals dictating which way scientific inquiry goes. Um, I spoke to the head of one astronomy department who who reassured me that academics and scientists cannot be so easily swayed, which I believe having you know spent some time with professors, but sort of can't believe because they also have to follow the money. So now back to my favorite topic, the nation of Oscardia. Yeah, Oscardia. <laughs> Who's one. behind that? And so, why? I don't even know how that fits into the others. This is, I'm going to, it's, it's so different from the others. This is a gentleman um, by the name of Asher Bioli, who eventually wants to get people on the moon and have pensioners in arcs in space. But for oh, right lovely. now, yes. Yep. So if you are an aging person, just get ready. You can go with Mr. Ashrabioli on an arc in space. But for right now, he has what he calls the first space nation. And originally it was sort of, you know, it was just like a website and people could fill out a form and apply to be citizens. And he was sort of the first citizen. And then recently they launched a satellite uh, into space that had people's private data on it. So you could have, you know, I guess, illicit photos if you wanted. You could also have your cat videos and they would be there in space. And he said the whole idea here was to, you know, citizens' personal information was out there beyond the boundaries of, of nations and geopolitics. But what Porn I think, in space. You're porn basically saying porn in space. There's porn in space and it's not dictated by, by you know, uh, geopolitics. But what I thought was so interesting is that if you read the fine print, it actually is... Uh, governed by European like intellectual law. So I think this is a really nice symbol of how even if you go to space with your money, you like the earth and its and its um and its tentacles and its realities will come and find you and you can either create responsible regulations to make sure that that is appropriately done or you can send a satellite with porn into space and sort of hope that nobody realizes that you're still governed by the laws of Austria. Red tape is everywhere. Okay, one last question, Joe. So if you, you're a betting man, who makes it to Mars first, NASA or Elon Musk or someone else? Boy, I'm, I'm not much of a betting man. I would probably bet on Elon Musk at, uh, at this point. Yeah, but betting on NASA is not a never a good idea. Um, <laughs> so that, that, in that way, it's easy. Double, um, double or nothing. Moon, what year? <laughs> oh, twenty twenty seven. 
Okay. For, for, for a manned mission, maybe a little bit later, but somewhere around 2027, 20, 28, probably. Faster than we thought, but shorter than anyone expects, and it won't be a colony. It'll be a visit. Or maybe it'll be to, to bury Elon or something, make a tomb for him on Mars or something like that. <laughs> on that note, Joe, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Thanks, too. Um, you can check out Joe's new book, Spaceport Earth. And ER listeners, again, thanks for joining us. We like to hear from you. So if you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at forumpolicy.com. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.